everybody who's not a cis white guy learns in some ways to embrace discomfort. Uh, women get used to uh, learning how to behave, right? And men never have had to learn how to behave. This is RJ McGill from the American Academy in Berlin, and you're listening to Beyond the Lecture. P. Carl is a dramaturg, nonfiction writer, theater producer, and distinguished artist in residence at Emerson College. As a Holtzbrink Fellow at the American Academy in fall 2018, he's working on a memoir about gender transition entitled Becoming a White Man, to be published by Simon & Schuster. The American Academy's Tina Rice sat down with Carl to talk about his memoir, recent political and social debates surrounding transition, and how the democratization of criticism is good for the arts. In your Academy talk on September 18th, you read from your memoir in progress, Becoming a White Man. Uh, for our podcast listeners who weren't there, can you tell us what the book is about? Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, I uh, am writing a memoir, uh, and the memoir is very much focused on a kind of two-year stretch of transitioning from uh, living as a woman to uh, living as a man. And uh, so it's about a gender transition. Uh, it's about a gender transition that ha happens later in life, which is significant, uh, as I'm 52 now. But it also looks back to um, uh, a life lived as a woman and then now a life lived as a man and tries to make sense of uh, this idea of what it means to have in some ways lived uh, in two different bodies and um, uh, seeing uh, the world from two very very different uh, gendered perspectives. And then the book also takes up uh, kind of the polit particularly American politics of the moment around identity at a very um, <laughs> contentious time for the term white masculinity, tries to make sense of um, the uh, some of the history and understand my understandings of white masculinity. You described your book as a critique, but also as a quote, a love letter to white masculinity. And um, as a feminist, I'm often more concerned with uh, what is problematic about white masculinity, but um, the more positive angle is often lost. What can we love about masculinity today? And what is your vision for it going forward? <laughs> it's, it's a, a big question, it's I a know. Big question. <laughs> it's a big question. And it's weird. I mean, in some ways, what's so unusual for someone like myself is that uh, I always felt like a man, uh, and the whiteness just comes with me, right? So when I say I love white masculinity, what I'm mostly saying is I love masculinity, but I have to own the fact that I'm a white man in a culture um, that is uh, very racially divided, right? So um, so it's not so much loving the whiteness part of it, it's really about loving um, the masculinity pieces of it. I felt like, uh, always felt like a boy and a man, and that I've uh, kind of loved, um, in some ways, conventional things about male culture. I kind of love guy talk. I love sitting in bars and drinking bourbon and chatting it up. And men are different than women in, uh, in sometimes in the ways they talk, in the ways they intersect, in the ways they interact. Uh, certainly for me as somebody who always thought I was interacting with men as a man, but they saw me as a woman. And now as they see me as a man, we have different kinds of conversations. And so what the book explores is me um, loving inhabiting uh, my masculinity, acknowledging um, the problematic nature of it because it not only is masculinity such a big problem now, but whiteness in America and I think in Germany and other places is a big problem. And so what I try to do is deal with loving being in this new body and then realizing 
uh, all the things that are um, a problem. And I, I don't know what is redeemable about masculinity now. I mean, uh, part of the book takes up having, I, I, I finished the first draft of the manuscript uh, while the uh, Kavanaugh hearings were happening with the Supreme Court. Not much to like about masculinity in that uh, case. Um, and so what I'm, I'm really thinking about is uh, how ma masculinity has been shaped in, in the U.S. And then, you know, what are we going to do about that? The book is strangely very much a feminist kind of manifesto. And then it's this also strange uh, love of inhabiting a male's body. And so I, I talk about I double as a person and the book really doubles in its, in its message in that way. In your talk at the Academy, you mentioned that a lot of uh, misogyny is so normalized that it is uh, invisible to women and men alike. But many women uh, do know, at least as a gut feeling, mm -hmm. that there are so many situations when they're, they feel like something is off or they just know that a man wouldn't be treated in the same way. And this, but any attempt to vocalize that is often met with denial, almost like gaslighting. How do we break out of that? Of course, I know, having lived as a woman, I knew I felt discrimination as a woman, too. I think what I'm trying to say in the book is when you get outside of it a little bit, you, it even looks worse because part of the survival mechanism of living in a particular kind of body is you don't take on all the misogyny. Like you see it, but you don't take it on. And now I'm like, oh my God, you know, as a kind of more from the outside. So I feel it more and I feel like I have to do something about it. I was a woman leader in the theater for many years And I, the gaslighting was like insane, right? And so one of the things the book has allowed me to do is to go back and go, oh my God, like all the ways that women learn to kind of just go, oh, oh, I guess I messed up. Oh, I guess I did something. So I tell this very minor story, but it's kind of like a major story in the way that these things accumulate, which is I was working with somebody And, you know, at the, I was at the time, uh, you know, uh, people considered me a, a queer white woman. And I was um, and, and he had this idea that we would do a collaboration with a queer youth group. And so we went, we had the meeting, we agreed that I would participate and collaborate. And I was doing what I said I was going to be doing. And I sent an update to him and said, oh, yeah, here's how things are going, you know. And he said, you know, I'm really concerned that um, your uh, personal interests are getting in the way of your work. And I was like huh? Because when we had left the meeting, he's like, this is like a perfect project for you. And it was all his idea. And then suddenly I became like the person who wasn't doing my job. When you're in it, you think, oh my, what, oh, what did I do? Oh, I screwed up. Oh. And now in this kind of, you know, hindsight, being able to tap into the fact that I'm completely sane, that those things were happening and that I don't feel uh, doubting of myself anymore. In your uh, Berlin Journal article, you wrote, um, you called on white men to, quote, stop interrupting all the time and listen and feel uncomfortable. Why do we need to embrace discomfort to move towards social justice? Everybody who's not a cis white guy learns in some ways to embrace discomfort. Uh, women get used to Uh, learning how to behave, right? And men never have had to learn how to behave. And so women learn how to double. They learn how to have a really smart idea and opinion 
and hold back saying it until it's their turn because if they interrupt, they're too aggressive. White men, for the first time in their history, are starting to double too, right? So the way that we keep saying white men, white men, white men is the same way we've said, oh, let's have feminist studies because women, 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 women. Let's have African-American studies, you know, people of color, people of color, people of color. White men have never been called out like this. And they don't like it, right? Like they don't like to be a subject position. They like to be the universal, uh, you know, reality. And so what I say in that that uh, short uh, essay is uh, m- men have to really think about the way in which they're, they are living by different rules and that partly learning about that uh, requires intervention. Sometimes it means uh, sitting on your hands and being quiet. I can't tell you the number of... Uh, what I would call woke white men, you know, white men who really feel they're um, open-minded and they're feminists and they're advocating for, you know, racial uh, equity and all those things. And yet they totally take over a meeting. They totally, I mean, they, they talk over every, I mean, and you're just like, but you, and so it's, they don't understand, they can't connect their thoughts and behaviors. Women and people of color and trans people, queer people learn how to do that because they have to. So mm-hmm. in a way, it would be good to have something like white masculinity studies. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm designing a course now um, on white masculinity, and uh, it's really fascinating. And there, it's not all, it's not, um, you know, monosyllabic. I mean, there, it's complex sometimes, but it's also uh, very stereotypical in a lot of ways. And so I think, um, I think we have to start to really look at that. So um, coming back to your background in theater, mm-hmm. in, in your introduction, you touched on that a little bit um, with the uh, election of Donald Trump and the AfD in Germany and in uh, some Eastern European countries. Uh, we've seen people with uh, racist, sexist and transphobic agendas move into positions of power. What would you say is the role of theater and the arts in such perilous times? It's a great question. I think artists are always asking themselves that question because, of course, uh, many artists I know want to be intervening right now into what is happening, uh, particularly with this kind of swing toward white supremacy and uh, um, and very... um, uh, very scary um, xenophobic kind of policies. And what I'm hoping for myself as an artist, what I always hope with the work that I produce as, as a theater person or with the book I'm writing, uh, you want to be creating always uh, competing stories and narratives. Um, uh, the book itself is extremely personal. It's very vulnerable uh, to publish. But part of doing that is really about the that we we really don't even know who transgender people are in the U.S. I mean, there are a handful of people who have written. There are a handful, but you know, it's so uh, unknown. And so, I feel like for the kind of sake of the future, like if you look at the stats of the number of young trans people who commit suicide or attempt suicide, or so I think anytime you're in a in a milieu where people or you look at the number of black men who are being shot just for walking down the street, or I think any artist who's living in our current reality is trying to intervene in some important way in those kind of conversations. And so that's what I hope art can do. Uh, it can create conversation, dialogue. It can also put us in proximity. Uh, I had a number of people after, not a number, but a handful of people uh, come up after I did my presentation here and say, you know, uh, I, I know I know a trans person. I never really understood what, like, you know, what, what that was about. And this was so helpful in that way. 
there is a lot of discourse about trans people, but as you say, not enough knowledge about the lived realities and also how yeah. complex the realities is, and it depends on just the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's very complex. I mean, and you know, I really, I, one of the things I say in the book uh, is that you, you know, you will want my body to stand in for all trans people, but my trans experience is very different than, and and also like very different to be my age and transition, and to be nineteen and transition. And uh, I talk in the book about, um, particularly towards the end, about you know, a lot of people now identify as non-binary because they don't want to inhabit either male or female. And though that's a newer reality, but another important piece of the experience, very different from me who sees myself very much inside of a binary, you know? And so I think um, we need as many stories as possible, and they're going to all be um, very different. Uh, in your Berlin Journal article, mm -hmm. you write um, that white male theater critics um, often argue that the democratization of critiques, so open it up, opening it up to a more diverse range of voices mm -hmm. um, would lead to the death of excellence and professionalism. Mm -hmm. So what, it is, what, what is it exactly that they are scared of? I think there's always this idea that there is a, um, there is a way to judge art that doesn't come from a body and a perspective. And a good critic will argue that they are able to criticize distinct from their, you know, their bodily experiences and context, right? Like that's what you, you know, it's a kind of objective and, and the way that a, a critic generally does it, particularly in the theater, but in any art form is they look back at all the plays they've seen before and they hold it up in, in a context of what they know, right? Well, if you think about the theater, which has been a primarily white art form, primarily white male art form historically, then their context can't help but to be limited by their cultural experiences, especially in the earlier days of starting to produce plays by people other than white men. Uh, and you still hear this all the time about women's plays, all the time. I just read a review in The New Yorker about a really terrific uh, Asian-American woman who wrote a play that uh, went to Broadway, first Asian-American woman ever to be on Broadway, and um, he criticized uh, her play by criticizing her for being ambitious. Like, this is 2018, and yet another critique of the ambitious woman who wanted to be on Broadway. Um, and so I feel like that issue of criticism is that uh, that you're bringing in these contexts and biases, and you cannot help it. And what a, what a critic will say is, no, 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 I'm objectively, I objectively know from my experience good versus bad art. And what 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 I was sort of saying is, yeah, you can't know what you don't know. Why are there no women of color reviewing? Why are there no trans people? Like, what would it be to bring a different kind of context in to, um, uh, into criticism? Did the city offer new perspectives to your work, being here and going to place here? Berlin has been very informative. Being here in Wannsee, a few feet from where the Wannsee conference took place, where people made decisions about who should live and who 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 shouldn't, where we are in the U.S. right now, that feels very present tense. So a lot of things about being in Berlin are, are, are relevant to the to the work I'm doing. You've been listening to an interview with writer and theater producer P. Carl, a Holtzbring Fellow at the American Academy in Berlin in fall 2018. His forthcoming memoir is entitled Becoming a White Man. 
He was interviewed today by the Academy's Tina Rice. You can listen to more of our Beyond the Lecture series interviews on our website, americanacademy.de. There you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and Twitter. Beyond the Lecture is a production of the American Academy in Berlin, and this episode was produced by William Woodcroft. I'm your host, R.J. McGill. Thanks for listening. <laughs>